Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What does RIT even stand for? Really excited to have our guest come in today. Before we introduce our guest, I want to make sure you, the listeners, know who else is on this podcast. So hello to Justin Dorfman calling in from LA. Justin's still wearing a hat. How are you doing? I'm great, Richard. I am still wearing a hat. No one has ever seen the top of Justin's head. Abigail calling in from Toronto. How are you doing? I'm great. Not wearing a hat, but it's fine. <laughs> Excellent. Our guest just pointed to his head, which I just saw the top of. So thank you so much, Stephen Jacobs, for joining in and saying hello today. How are you? I'm great, thanks. It might be important to note that both guests today have the light reflecting off their bald pates. So <laughs> I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Chris Baker, how do you feel about that? I have to own it. Otherwise, I'll live in some sort of form of denial, and that's no good. That is all right. The denial is a great state to live in. I believe it's close to Egypt. Thank you both so much for coming in. This is excellent. I apologize for that joke. For those of you who don't know them, Stephen Jacobs and Chris Baker both work at RIT, the Rochester Institute of Technological Local Widgets, which is a really cool place. It's in upstate New York. A lot to talk about there. So first off, I don't even know where to start. Chris Baker, tell me a bit more about Open at RIT. Yeah, so I am the newest member into this team, and we are working actively to build open community and foster collaboration in the open space. Institutions are notoriously proprietary, and so there is a lot of concern for protecting whether it be individuals' work and their input into whatever they're producing, whether it be research. And so there's a lot of concern about if investing in open on the individual level will harm somebody's career or if it will result in their, you know, their research and their life's work being stolen. Well, obviously we know that there's a lot, we know better than that. And so through things like our past fellowship program, we partnered with professors to help develop different pieces that will assist or enhance what they're working on. Currently, we also employ students, whether it be through full-time co-ops and even some some part-time roles to assist in this work. So what we are doing is actually cultivating students who will be used to and understand the open environment and what it means to be a contributor and we'll find the value in it and we'll start to understand the idiosyncrasies of what it means to be a contributor. Awesome. Thank you for that explanation. I love the breadth of work that you're doing at RIT. Now, RIT is a large university. It's a land-grant university, which means it has to have... It's not a land-grant university? Okay. Misheard that. It's a large university. Open RIT is not just a lab. It's a whole department, right? What do you have it as? So really, open source at RIT, I began teaching a single class in open source in 2009. And that grew over time to multiple classes and an academic minor, which is a collection of five courses that goes, at least in New York State, goes on their diploma. So they can be, they take the minor, they can be, I majored in nuclear brain surgery. Oh, and I minored in open source, right? When we built that, academic program, we built three legs to it. There's the classroom piece, there's the experiential education piece, you have stuff outside of classes like hackathons and stuff like that. 
And we built this opportunity for kids to co-op and open source to contribute to other programs. And because we had such a long tail in doing this stuff within a university, when their interest built up in part thanks due to the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation in terms of building OSPOs into the university, we became the second university at an OSPO. Sorry, the second university with an OSPO. And so different academic OSPOs, there's around 10 of them now, and the Sloan folks are in process of vetting another set of grant proposals to build them. They're all a little different, right? So some of them, if you broke them into two cases, right, some of them are like classic OSPOs. They're almost entirely focused on software issues and compliance and making sure that people understand policy and that kind of stuff within the entity. Others, which I believe OSPO++ is now calling full-service academic OSPOs, are essentially helping faculty understand the impact of open work and helping the university understand it. Because in the last 18 months or so, the federal government pushed to really stress open and kind of broaden and deepen what open means for faculty when their research is funded, right? This is a whole new world. Chris alluded to it. But academic research always has straddled this line between the scientific method means you share stuff and it's open and how do we do that? And the way that academics share their stuff is pretty constrained in terms of what they get credit for, right? No matter where we work, we all have to get credit for what we do. We know on the business side, the large folks that still have open source programs after the last nine months, if they haven't laid them off, right, those OSPOs, they're engaged in trying to justify why they hire people full time to work on software not invented here, right? So you have to talk about and how those people who aren't writing code, because you can assess the code in GitHub, but, you know, figuring out the UI UX people, figuring out the folks who are doing docs, who are doing community management, that's hard for an entity that's focused on ROI and KPI to figure out how to give these guys what they deserve or know if they're doing a good job or not. On the academic side, it's, well, if, if your work is not the kind of work that traditionally gets published in journal nature, how do you credit the work that people do? So, for example, I'm going to guess that almost everyone in the listener community knows about the open source statistical package R, which runs a ton of research and a ton of science around the world. If I'm the maintainer on R, academic journals and academic conferences, those are not where I'm going to go to talk about what I do. And then, okay, you're probably propping up 80% of science around the world, but how do you demonstrate that you have impact? So these are the kinds of weird questions that technologists and scientists and researchers within universities now have to figure out. So on the one hand, we focus on helping with all that stuff, including the traditional open source software compliance stuff at the university. But we're also very active outside the borders of our university because the whole academic community and the federal communities are all trying to figure this stuff out. So we participate in a lot of activity outside of our campus. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so I got into open source through the research space. So it's really exciting to see how you're supporting more careers that way and just helping people find a place to land when they can't, when they're not publishing in those top journals because it doesn't make sense with what they're doing. Have you found that OSPOs are creating more career pathways if people can go into this OSPO work instead of the traditional tenure track professor? Or are you providing more like different kinds of support there? Really, it's too soon to say. I mean, I right. I personally, because 
the Sloan Foundation was, gener- was generous with us, mm-hmm. I've created career opportunity for Mike Nolan and Chris Baker. But in terms of our universities, how well are universities recognizing open work? It's really too early in the game. I think that academics are still trying to figure out how this works, right? There's a whole group. The National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine is a group that tries to affect university practices and policies throughout the U.S. And they spun up a special group about 18 months ago called Helios, the Higher Education Leadership in Open Scholarship Group. That's 90 what the NSF calls institutes of higher education. So everything from community colleges up to Harvard, Stanford, and Yale. They're all trying to figure this stuff out in real time now. So that group has working groups that were part of that, where they're trying to come up with standards and example policies and best practices on how to make academia deal with open better. So we're very much in the early stages of folks just getting their head around what changes are and how to make it work. And if I can there, what I, coming from a humanities background, it's fascinating to be talking about breaking down silos. And for me, that looks very different than what it looks like in the software side. But the same principles very much apply and are necessary when people are moving into their next phases of their career, understanding that by working from, what do we call it? The scholarship of discovery. That's right. Having to develop everything on your own, work inside your own space. It is an illogical way of furthering society forward. And that crosses every piece of academia. And it seems pretty logical when you say it out loud. However, without program offices like this and engaging faculty and showing the opportunities, you'll continue to have this mystery or misperception around the concept of open and open work, as we call it. Chris referenced a type of scholarship. Those of you who want to hit Wikipedia and look up Boyer, B-O-Y-E-R, Boyer and scholarship, there's this classification system of like four or five different types of scholarship. When we think of professors and scientific discovery, we kind of think of the guy who thinks great thoughts and creates new findings and goes to traditional academic conferences and publishes in traditional academic journals. And that's the kind of stuff that open doesn't do very well. I mean, open doesn't fit into that kind of breakdown very well. Decades ago, this gentleman named Boyer broke down lots of different types of ways in which a researcher within a university does their work, right? They do scholarship of teaching, they do scholarship of working with community, they do scholarship of integration and bringing all this stuff together. And a lot of those align better under open than the classic Einstein Eureka kind of model. Does that make sense? And at RIT, we actually include those in the university level scholarship recommendations and policy, but different colleges deal with it different ways. And across the research world, you'll find different people do things different ways other than the classic eureka moment is the default. So we're trying to help move things to be more broadly embracing. The real issue is, and this is why open source and sustain match so well the aspirations of academic research, right? Is that you're supposed to be evaluated on the things that the academic world calls impact and dissemination, right? 
translation. They call it translation, but you're okay. You've done your work. Is anybody else using it? Is it making a change? Is it moving the needle? Are other people forking it or replicating it and using it as well? Right. That's what that stuff means. And academics are trained to only think about the only way I demonstrate my impact in my translation is if it got published in a big name journal that has lots of people who look at it. And if I can show people have also cited that paper in their papers. So it's a very narrow way to measure impact in translation. And once universities really look at what we want to do in open science, open data, open software, open hardware, open academic journals, open educational resources, all these opens, right? Once they get that there are other ways to track impact and translation, they'll see that open is actually a huge benefit to them, but it's changing that mindset. And because there are so many opens, RIT with a couple of collaborators has put out in the world something we call an open work definition openworkdefinition.com. You can find it there. And the problem is, is that on campus, when I got funded initially to do this work, what am I going to call my thing, right? If I call it an open source programs office, then people who don't do software on campus are going to go, oh, well, that's not for me. So no. So we call ourselves an open programs office. We take the S out. The National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine when they announced that they wanted to really put a push on open work across campus in all ways, shape, and form, they picked the words open scholarship. And in their announcement of this to presidents and provosts around the country, they're talking about open scholarship, parentheses, which some people call open research, and some people call open science. New sentence. Oh, and by the way, when we say open scholarship, we're also talking about the humanities, the arts, and the professions, right? So there's all these qualifications. And if you say, well, I'm here for open scholarship, then there's the problem that many people might think that, oh, well, I'm a practicing artist, or, oh, I don't do pure Einstein Eureka scholarships, so that isn't for me, right? So we put the open work definition out there to say, we don't want to do all these many different terms that might block someone from thinking they can participate. So we have all these opens. They can be blockers as well as entry points. And so for people to be able to say, I do open work in software, in hardware, in economics, and right? I do open educational resources, right? I do open work. And what I do that's open is the textbooks, the articles, the software that help students and faculty. So When I started meeting with the Sloan Foundation, and the Sloan Foundation's focus is on science, mathematics, and economics. That's what they fund. When I started meeting with them about this, the head of that area within the Sloan Foundation, Josh Greenberg, said to me, I think academia has benefited from open source a lot. They have not been great contributors back to open source. And The Sloan Foundation is interested in that open space, partially because we use it, but we don't contribute to it as well as we should. And also because the thrust around all of this open data from the federal government is that there are challenges within academia that the federal government and most of the governments around the world 
believe open helps, right? So around the world, you see more and more national plans for open science. If you download the second French plan for open science, that's a really good, very easy to parse, really straightforward guideline to where the world wants to go. And there are issues that the federal government here that we don't do national policies the way the other countries do because the other countries, their government and their academic efforts are more tightly bound to each other. The current traditional model of traditional scholarship, one, it's being gamed. So people are using... By who? By other scientists. Oh, right? okay. So as a scientist, my evaluation goes back to how many people looked at my stuff and publicly stated that they used my stuff as a foundation for their stuff. Have you ever caught someone red-handed yourself? No, I have not. Got to be clear that I am not a traditional professor. I don't have a PhD. I come out of the game space. The whole reason I got into open was All I right. game students to make educational games for one laptop per child. So I'm not the normal guy. Have you ever played Actually, Doom on one laptop per child? Yes, we did. <laughs> yes, I did too. More to the point. Great question. Great question. I, I really like the conversation around the difference of incentives between academia and, say, open source, right? Academics are all about impact factor, tenure, all those things. Open source people are more about downloads, clout, maybe money. Yep. Although money is a bit harder for open source people, but generally they want to get a better job, which then pays them regularly and then do open source on the side or something like that, right? I'm actually curious, first off, well, before I ask this question, SJ, you founded Open at RIT. You've been teaching open source there for like 10 years. I know you're not the only person on the staff there. Chris Baker, what's your official title and what do you officially do? I'm assistant director for the Open at RIT program office. Excellent. And it's also Mike Nolan, right? Yeah, Mike is the associate director. So the goal of our second grant from the Sloan Foundation is that Chris comes in to do the student mentorship and internship management and start us improving our comms because we're very bad at external comms. And then Mike moves up to bringing our work back out to the rest of the world. When we started this, we were working, we started the fellowship, the co-op work for students. We were supporting UNICEF and a bunch of other NGOs. The yeah. first loan grant had us focus that practice of supporting and educating around open, using our students to work with internal folks. And now we're moving our work back out again. And so Mike's job as associate director is to start making sure that we're going back to our roots and supporting external organizations as well. Which he's really well-placed to do. We've had him on the podcast before. We'll have the link to that in the show notes. You can also go to the podcast at stainoss.org to find that podcast. Thank you for that, that um, clarification. And that actually leads to my question, which is, Chris, what are you doing to help students deal with diverse incentives? How do you help them both succeed at open source and academia? Or do you not try? Like, I feel like that's a really hard thing about OzPost, right? They want to get students involved with open source. But by doing that, you're opening up students towards needing multiple different things that they need. They need to have a great open source library. They also need to write journals. And it's just, it's really difficult. So I'm wondering, what do you do to help with that? Well, we are working at the... You know, you're talking about a high level versus the infrastructure level, right? So we are taking student expertise is primarily what we're doing. We're taking students from given backgrounds, whether it be full stack developers, whether it be graphic design, and using that to produce the structure for 
open work inside of various, whether it be research or the things that will eventually be published. So what we're doing is training contributor at the level where it's not for the final product, not for the thing that is going to get published, rather the facilitation of how we get to that point. So how am I making helping students be successful is we work as a production firm. I'm a project manager. So we are, let's say I have a, for instance, if I have a first year student, which I have a couple right now, their work experience might be extremely varied. So what I'm working on is the concept not only of contribution, but also developing them inside of their field at the same time. The two are not separate pieces. You need to contribute with your expertise to various forms of production. So that's where my, that's I think the biggest benefit is understanding these two things are not too separate. It is using what you're understanding to contribute to open the open community. Without that, there's always going to be that gap And there's always going to be this confusion around what exactly their role is inside of this collective community. And let me just explain a little bit on that, Richard. There's the undergraduate students aren't the ones who are doing research and publishing their research, right? At RIT, we're well positioned to do this work because students have to get full-time paid internships to graduate, right? So, and when they're doing full-time work, they're not supposed to be in classes, right? You're either on co-op, often these co-ops are out in Silicon Valley or in these coasts, sometimes kids even co-op overseas. So by providing them opportunities to get their co-op blocks done, we're, we're a great influencer and a great mode of assistance there. On the graduate school side, it's about educating them on open science practices. So a little bit different. And because I said the words open science, let me just loop us back briefly to where we're going on why the feds and why the foundations are interested in supporting open work is traditional scientific publishing and conferences. It's being gamed statistically, either by people using various mathematical efforts to increase their hit counts, if you will, on their research, or on them creating papers that are mostly bogus, but have really cool metadata tags on them. So people will just add them into their list. There's an economic problem around traditional publication. It's expensive and less and less people, basically a, an academic journal is published by a publisher who gets a lot of money and relies on volunteer experts in the field to read the papers and give them the thumbs up. People have less time to do that work anymore and less incentive to do that work. There's a huge DEI component to traditional academic publishing in that most of the research money goes to old white men like me. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I'm really glad that you brought up that difference between the undergrad students, because that was going to be my question, if the students you're working with were undergrads or if these are the graduate students doing research, because I I agree it is different. They have different incentives. I'm so glad that you're introducing undergrads to the space, and hopefully they can do more and more of that with their career. For the graduate students and the researchers, so you mentioned introducing them to open science practice or open scholarship practices, language is hard. And I know there have been a lot of initiatives to help with this in the past. There's the Journal of Open Source Software, there's Project Credit, there's different ways to try to give academics credit for their open source work and their technical work that they wouldn't otherwise. But it's, I don't know if any of them have really taken off. Where do you see this space? What do you see next in the space or what's needed in the space to actually help these researchers be incentivized to 
do open as part of their daily work? So a lot of it, like a lot of the need for more open anywhere comes down to policy. Policy says at the moment, or policy and what policy defines as work that counts, air quotes, to what you do is still tied to this kind of top 10 journals, top 10 peer-reviewed conferences mentality. And what will expand open is for academic institutions to recognize that the guy who's the maintainer for R is holding most of science on his back like Atlas. And that's really awesome work. How do we give him credit for the awesome work? Just like Google and Amazon might be saying, I know I need to pay these guys to help prop up this piece of my stack because if they don't, my business might fail. And oh, by the way, civilization might fail since we're so dependent on the internet at this point. It's how do we find the way in which people can be recognized for what they do. We in the open source world often talk about the invisible work that the role diverse nature of open source needs, but that we can't just go to GitHub and figure out how many hits they've had. Before Open at RIT started, we did some research on the Ford Foundation, funded by the Ford Foundation, that looked at PyPI and that community and how despite the fact that they would hire people specifically to do project management and recruitment and sustainability and that kind of work, the nature of the people driving the project were so code-focused that even the people who had been hired to do role-diverse work felt guilty that they weren't spending all their time writing code, right? We don't want that to happen anywhere. Role diversity is huge in any kind of software development. And we also know that role diversity, the more role diverse your project is, the more likely you are to have a more... DEIA friendly project because statistically at the moment, coders tend to still balance out as folks who are pale and male, right? But when we get, we see this at RIT all the time with our co-op base, that where we get a more diverse pool of applicants is outside of the actual code related roles. Does that make sense? I mean, I was, it was very nice to be recognized for this work at the Open3D Engine Con last year. I was asked to sit on a panel around diversity and open source as part of that conference. Bald men with white beards aren't normally the people you sit, see sitting on a diversity panel, but they asked me to come and be part of it specifically because our focus on role diversity, which is pretty unique in the open source educational world at the moment, means that my student pool is much more diverse than the average class that's taking open source software stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it does make sense. And you have this really, I would say, mature program. And I was just wondering, like, what successful alumni came out of RIT Open? I would see that a lot of the Sustain audience knows the name Justin Flory. Justin's one of our alums. Who is that? I'm just joking. (laughs) Three or four of the last Fedora community managers have been people who've been involved in our project at one level or another. But because we're role diverse, I think Jen Kotler has been on Sustain or has been on Sustain Design before. So... 
Jen came to RIT to major in biomedical illustration because she liked the merging of the world's art and science and tech. She then got interested in taking the game design minor, started taking my open source classes, ended up getting the open source minor, if memory serves. And now she designs the web interfaces for scientific researchers at NASA's Space Science Telescope Institute, the folks who run the Hubble and all those other giant telescopes. And she's working with blind scientists on sonification of the astronomical data so it's easier for them to figure out what's going on. So I could keep going, but that'll give you a feel for what happens. And Jen, as a student, her project got selected to go to the White House to talk about what she was doing on one laptop per child. So we've had some rock stars for sure. I can't claim credit for them. I'm glad they went through my program, but you know, they they got where they are on their own merits. They just learned about open for me. So I love that. Jen's podcast was awesome, by the way. It's on the Sustaining Open Source Design Podcast, SOSDpodcast.sustainopsis.org. Do check Yeah, also Django is part of that podcast. Django is also Django. the best. Django is an industrial designer who came to us to learn about interface design and HCI and is now actively working in the open space as a designer. One of my questions is, I mean, that's talking about alumni who have gone through your program. Most of our listeners won't have the opportunity to go to open to at RIT. I've certainly aged out, I think, but it's possible, you know, that other people may. But one of the questions I have is, how are you expanding beyond the student base that you're working on? You mentioned OSPO++ earlier. That's obviously a network of university OSPOs that talks together about how to build better program offices in academia. I'm curious, what other avenues are you pursuing to help teach open work outside of the university? Chris, maybe you got some thoughts? Yeah. Chris, you want to talk about the open work network first, and then I'll um, add in other stuff? Yeah. So it's actually a pretty exciting time for us because in the next coming week, week and a half, we're going to be opening up our collaborative workspace with representatives from both academia, private industry, to start working on some of the vision and parameters around what open work looks like, particularly in academia. So we are going to be working asynchronously to start to write papers that we can present down the road. We are looking at things as far as like lawyers types of scholarship. We'll be looking at what, how do we go about making sure that people are getting credit for their work. And Stephen, I'm sure we'll talk about other areas, but the goal being that we are making it a very approachable amount of work, first off, by taking industry experts from their area and making it so that we're not asking these professionals to effectively sacrifice all their free time. Rather, we're really encouraging that we all can contribute small parts and then to prepare ourselves to get together in larger groups or in person to do some focused development. So my role in that will be doing some community management, helping to bring all these different parts together, organizing the final products. And like I said, that's just about to launch and I'm thrilled. The open work network that Chris is talking about is an outgrowth of the summit we held last fall on open work in academia that had about 80 people come from industry, from academia, from government, and from philanthropy. So we're continuing those discussions through this open work network. We are happy to say that as of two days ago, we were informed that 
our proposal for a similar type of track within the FOTC conference in Portland in July has been accepted. At the time of this recording, the CFP won't be online, but by the time you hear this, you should shoot over to the FOSSI site. There's a lot of exciting tracks that have been proposed and accepted. We're also happy to have been part of and will be part of the Fawcett Play track proposed by the great folks at Secret Lab all the way out in Tasmania that are going to be doing open source game work. And they asked me to help out with that because I run the open source SIG for the International Game Developers Association. So, so we're doing that kind of work. There are lots of folks in different configurations trying to get their heads around open source and government and open source at university level and stuff like that. I think the, the thing that we bring to that conversation that's unique is having taught in the open source space and spoken in the open source space since 2009, I have a lot of friends and colleagues on the industry side. And when you look at groups like the National Academies, they're bringing in scientific publishing, they're bringing in academics, they're bringing, they're talking to the federal government, but they're not bringing in the industry folks. And the work that we've been able to do starting last September is to really make sure that folks who are in academia and government hear about what industry best practices are from the horse's mouth, as it were, right? It's not to make the way government works or the way academia works be the same as industry. They're different animals. They have to pursue and support open in different ways. But the problems are similar. Some of the solutions are similar. Some of the best practices are similar. And they can certainly all be evolved from each other, right? If we have these dialogues around and across these different silos, we're all likely better to do a better job. That sounds awesome. We are running up on time. So I want to take a bit of time here to ask, where can people learn more about open work at RIT? So if they surf over, there's the university site, which is very small and not very informative. But if you search on <laughs> open at RIT traditionally, you might hit that. That's getting rebooted, but that happens on the university side. We tend to point people to what we call the Italian site. HTTPS colon openr.it. So that's the one that is dynamically backed and is more likely to have the most up-to-date information. I'm now frantically Googling whether there is an R user group in Italy that might come into conflict with you. Too I'm late. not seeing anything yet, but <laughs> you never know. This is hilarious. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for those links. That's great. Where can people learn more about you two, do either of you have blogs or Mastodon instances that are worth pinning? I'm pretty active in LinkedIn and Facebook, and I can be followed on those things. I once aspired to blogging. I am now way too busy. So you can, you <laughs> Chris, can find all those. More to follow. Chris does have a LinkedIn site where you can yeah. at least read a little bit about it. But I, yeah, I mean, my background, again, I, this is my first hmm. year, and my background, I come from Everything from DOD public affairs to higher ed marketing and private industry technical content development. So I've covered a lot of ground and I think bringing in the ability to take my, my experience into these various areas and see how it can contribute has really set me up for this introduction to the open world. But currently, there will be more to follow as we start to develop our communications moving forward. 
looking forward to hearing your matrix IRC handle. No, but that's great. That's awesome. Welcome to the space. It's super great to have you on, Chris. Super great to have you on, Stephen Jacobs. I was shocked it took us this long to get you on this podcast, but it's great to have you here. And thank you so much for sharing about the awesome work that you're doing with students who themselves are also doing awesome work. And so it's just really great to hear that um, basically the first OSPO at a university is continuing to just go strong and quote, Justin is pretty okay. mature. Second, Second, what was the first? The don't, JHU? Don't, don't have Saeed yell at me. <laughs> I was thinking that in my head. I'm like, I don't remember which. I was just going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But Saeed Chaudhary at Johns Hopkins, of course. Uh, Hopkins and Saeed were first. Saeed's now at Carnegie Mellon. He is. But, you know, hey, more I'll suppose for everyone. That's a, one way of doing it. We all just move universities every two years. All right. Speaking of moving around, this is the part of the show where we talk about something different than what we talked about before. That's right. It's Spotlight. Spotlight is where we highlight people, places, projects, things, or dogs, which we feel like just need more love and more light shed on them. Justin Dorfman, you are my first person to pick on every time you're on this podcast. What's your spotlight today? It's a little uh, dark, but it's got to be said. So my cousin Todd, he passed away yesterday and he was a CHP officer of 20 years and father of three. And my spotlight is the 988 crisis lifeline. Help is available. Speak to someone today. If you know someone, just tell them to dial 988. And Todd, you were a great cousin. Thank you for everything you've taught me. And yeah, that's it. Thank you, Justin. That's a, an excellent spotlight. Abby, what's yours? Mine is the GitHub Slack integration. I was thinking about notifications today and I actually really like the Slack integration for being notified for specific things. And it's an open source project. Check it out. But yeah, that's mine. We use it at Sourcegraph and we love it. Yeah, it's great. also want to say my condolences, Justin. One of my cousins passed away this year as well. So my spotlight going off of that is going to be getyourshittogether.com. <laughs> uh, get your shit together. Sorry for the swear for those of you who are there, but that's literally the name of it. It is a website that encourages you to figure out all the things that you don't want to do. Things like your will and your health insurance and your do not resuscitate and what happens to your stuff. All the stuff that's tough that when you pass away makes it a whole lot harder on your family. One of them, which is really interesting that I think I found through this website was the Harvard Brain Donation Service. Brains are not donated automatically. So if you want your brain to be used for science, there is a lack of brains in science you need to sign up as a brain donor. So please, yes, that was partially a joke, SJ, good catch. Sign up for Harvard Brain Donations. I have, and it's just a good thing to do. All right, Stephen Jacobs, what is your spotlight today? I think my spotlight today would be the FOSSE Conference website from the folks at Software Conservancy. By the time you hear this, it'll be up. There's going to be a lot of great stuff there. It's Conservancy's first time doing a conference like this, and they could really use having community members behind them, contributing, supporting in any way they can. So that's mine. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Thank you. Chris? Yeah, for me, it definitely is the young ladies in rural high schools, like my daughter, who happens to be on campus with me today, who are actively standing up to passive and aggressive sexism. And they are refusing to accept that the way people have thought in the past is just how it's going to be. And they are dealing with not only pressure and ridicule from their peers, but from teachers. And while there is support, it is different once you put your name and your voice on the line. And to the credit of other people like the local library, absolutely coming to their support. So 
I do want to sign a spotlight on these young people who are refusing to have their voices limited or to have their capacity looked at as anything other than absolutely superior. Love that too. This is definitely one of the more unique spotlights we've had. Thank you so much, SJ and Chris, for coming on. It's been great to have you both. Thank you, listeners, for listening. If you like this podcast, please like it on Apple, Spotify, wherever podcasts are sold. Also, you can go on to podcast.sustainoss.org to see the other guests and the show notes for this podcast. You can also go to our Discourse, discourse.sustainoss.org. If you're interested in chatting with other people about this sort of podcast, we will be putting a note about this one so you can jump in there and talk about whatever happened here. You can also email SJ. He is very available on LinkedIn. So is Chris Baker. I think that's actually all I need to say. By the way, audience, that wasn't sped up. That's just... Richard. We're oh, yeah. Follow us on Mastodon. Sorry. We're sitting in all of the fact he didn't black out from lack of oxygen. <laughs> I didn't black out, but I did forget to mention Mastodon. Do go check us out on Mastodon or on that Twitter thing, whatever Doge. Elon Musk is horrible. But yeah, do go ahead and look at us on the socials as well. And with that, thank you so much. Oh, you can also email podcast at stainoss.org. This is what happens when I talk too fast. I forget about all the cool things I need to talk about. Anyway, great. SJ, Chris, thank you. Abby, Justin, you're the best. Everyone, take care. Thanks, folks. Thank you.